Welcome to Mind the Owner's Manual. I'm your host, Lawrence Castilla. This podcast is dedicated to shedding light on the topic of meditation. Please visit the website mindtheownersmanual.com for further information about this podcast or if you're interested in starting a meditation practice. Joining me today is George Boyd, the founder of the Mudra Ashram Institute of Spiritual Studies. George is a master meditation teacher, a prolific author who has published more than 20 books, and he is an innovator in the field of meditation. I first met George in 1984 when I took his master course in meditation. I was actually George's second student to successfully complete this course there in his apartment in Venice, California. And while I had been exposed to spirituality for many years, the thing that really fueled my motivation and desire to learn to meditate was when my political science teacher at the Catholic high school that I was attending decided he wasn't going to teach class uh, a day that all the seniors uh, weren't going to be present. So he just had juniors in class that day. So he decided, of all things, to bring in his Ramdas tape and Ramdas book, and he played the tape on the tape machine, and he read from Miracle of Love, Ramdas's book about his guru, Neem Karoli Baba. Anyway, uh, my mind was blown by some of the things that I was listening to, so at the end of class, I went up to Mr. Rose and I said, can I borrow that book, and can I borrow that tape? And he was nice enough to lend me those materials. He was a great guy, ex-Vietnam vet. He was a medic in Vietnam and actually was awarded the Bronze Star for his service. Anyway, I went home. I consumed that book, Miracle of Love. It blew my mind and it was, uh, it really fueled the fire for me to really take the next step in my spirituality. So I followed that up by reading another Ramdas book, Journey of Awakening, and that's his book about meditation, retreats, and that's the book that really said, okay, meditation is clearly the next step. I have to learn, and I want to learn from someone who really knows their stuff. So I started to go around town asking people, where can I learn to meditate? So I ended up going places like Transcendental Meditation, the Self-Realization Fellowship, which is founded by Swami Yogananda, and other organizations around Los Angeles. And everything basically felt like I wasn't going to get the hands-on, direct teaching instruction that I craved. I wanted somebody who really knew what they were talking about. I didn't want to fall into a system. I didn't want to be just another cog on the assembly line turn something into a system where you're really not going to achieve at the highest level. So I asked around, I I continued to go see teachers, and I ended up meeting George at a a lecture by Prem Paul Rawat. He handed me his card. I looked at the card. It had all kinds of crazy things on his business card, soul reading, tarot reading, etc., etc. I'm like, I, I looked at the card, I looked at him, and I said, this is you? And he said, yes, that's my card. (laughs) So we actually, um, I didn't follow up with that. Uh, 
But he called me a few months later and told me he was starting a new class and asked me if I wanted to attend it. So uh, the second class, he did something called the Kundalini Mudra. And I went into deep samadhi, complete absorption. And my soul revealed levels that I never dreamed existed. And I came out of that experience with a huge smile on my face because I realized this guy actually knew what he was talking about and this was going to be direct experience not theory so that is my story for the day let's get on with our podcast good morning George good morning I'm uh I'm very, very excited about today's podcast. We're going to begin our series of going through the continuum of consciousness that you've mapped. And today we're going to dive into the conscious mind. Now, the conscious mind is one of the four primary areas of consciousness you've mapped. And these include the conscious mind, the subconscious mind, the metaconscious mind, and the superconscious mind, which is where things get especially interesting. Before we go through each level of the conscious mind, however, I think we should begin by discussing the ego, which you identify as the integration center of the conscious mind. In an article that appeared in Psychology Today titled, What is the Ego and Why is it so involved in my life? by Dr. Mark Leary. He states, the term ego is as confusing as any in psychology. Not only is the word itself used to refer to several distinct psychological constructs and processes, but the psychological landscape is littered with concepts that include ego in one way or another. Egotism, ego defense, egocentrism, superego, ego involved, and so on. But what does ego actually mean? What are we talking about when we refer to the ego? And what is the difference among all, the ter- all of the terms in which the term ego is embedded? Put simply, the English word ego is the Latin word for I. Literally translated, ego means I. If you were writing, I love you, in Latin, for example, you would write, ego amo te. End of his quote there. So, in modern spiritual discussion, ego is usually not used as a neutral word to describe the I. That is, um, ourselves as individuals. The ego is generally described in negative terms, primarily as a barrier or obstacle to overcome. And I'll give you a few quotes uh, showing this. So here we have Wayne Dyer. You can either be a host to God or a hostage to your ego. It's your call. Ramdas. The ego is not who you really are. The ego is your self-image. It is your social mask. It is the role you are playing. Your social mask thrives on approval. It wants control, and it is sustained by power because it lives in fear. Marianne Williamson, there is inside all our heads, 
the ego's rabid attack dog. It is purely vicious toward others and toward ourselves as well. Learning to control that dog and ultimately to end its life is the process and purpose of enlightened relationships. Here's Albert Einstein. More the knowledge, lesser the ego. Lesser the knowledge, more the ego. That's an interesting one for me because he's essentially looking at knowledge as the path to higher consciousness. Or uh, maybe he's just saying that smarter people have less of an ego. (laughs) Here's popular author Eckhart Tolle. When every thought absorbs your attention completely, when you are so identified with the voice in your head and the emotions that accompany it, you lose yourself in every thought and every emotion, then you are totally identified with form and therefore in the grip of ego. Ego is a conglomeration of recurring thought forms and conditioned mental emotional patterns that are invested with a sense of I, a sense of self. And here he is again, Eckhart Tolle. Complaining is one of the ego's favorite strategies for strengthening itself. And finally, we have Mahatma Gandhi, who said, when the ego dies, the soul awakes. So the ego is discussed in less than complementary terms in most cases, and in others, people are basically saying it has to die. So, George, why is there such a negative perception of the ego? What is making people so upset about this thing we call the ego? Well, the first thing we need to understand that the ego is a complex. Okay, the ego isn't like a little entity or something. It's a complex. It has several different functions. So the first function of the ego is an integrating center of the conscious mind. So imagine a wheel or a hub of a wheel. And this aspect of the ego integrates your experience of the waking state of consciousness, your grounded state. It integrates what's going on in your movement and body position awareness. It brings together your awareness of what's going on in your senses. It brings together your awareness of what goes on in the deep body awareness center, in your feeling center, and your mental center. And it also ties in your life experience. So it ties all these together. And then it also has the function of the ego, what we call the egoic octave of the will, which governs individual behavior. So whereas the aspect of will that's in the metaconscious mind can look forward many, many steps in the future. You know, you can make a long-term plan. I want to get a degree in accounting in college. I have to take all these classes. I have to make all these steps that are required for me to do that. Whereas the ego is in the present time and it is aware of one individual behavior, pick up the pen, put down the pen. Now, the next layer of the ego has to do with the different areas in your life. This is the way you project your desires and you say, okay, this is what I'm doing in these different areas of my life. So I might have certain desires 
for my career and certain desires for my finances, certain desires for my relationship. So there's an organizing function of the ego. And we tap into that level when you start monitoring the I am statements that come up within your consciousness. I think one of your quotes referenced the I statements. Typically, these are divided into 12 different areas. And I guess people divide these 12 different areas in, in different ways. I've written a lot about this in my book, A Primer on Practical Meditation in Daily Life and Education, where we talk about where people have these desires, these expectations in these 12 different areas of their life. And so you're continually processing, thinking and processing about these different areas. So a person might be processing about, okay, well, how do I make a little more money this month? How do I manage my budget this month? You know, how do I communicate better with my spouse or partner? How do I help improve my health? So you have certain desires that you want to do. You know, another aspect of the ego might be, well, you know, I really want to travel and I want to see, I want to see Germany. I want to go to Germany and travel throughout Europe. So you have these desires that the ego is thinking about and certain things might remind it of that. And so this aspect of the ego is a functional part, just as the integration center is a functional part. Now, another aspect of the ego which also is functional, is what we call your life remembrance or your life narrative, which is your experiences about your life. So you think back and you say, well, five years ago, you know, I did this and I did that and I had this bad thing happen to me. But you, you maintain a narrative of your life. And, you know, so we often say self-esteem is based upon you know, whether that life narrative is generally positive as opposed to, you know, I have a lot of bad things that happen to me. You know, I don't feel real good about myself because I didn't accomplish a lot. I didn't do things that I'm really proud of. I had these bad things happen to me. I got sick. So this life narrative is your story. It's your story of your life. And we all tell a certain story. And what we tend to do, and this is something psychologists have noted, is that we tend to emphasize the positive and kind of minimize the negative. You know, we don't really talk about our failures. We don't talk about stuff that happens to us that isn't real flattering. So it's like a resume, right? You don't say, okay, my boss chewed me out because I did X in the job. You say, you know, I implemented a solution that allowed us to sell $300,000 worth of new widgets. We talk about the good stuff, not, not the bad stuff. So we do tend to filter what we disclose to other people through this life narrative. So these are these three are, for the most part, positive aspects of the ego. They're not, they're not negative aspects. I mean, we might, I want to say, emphasize certain aspects of our of our life, you know, to say, oh, I'm so successful and I'm doing really well. And, you know, it's like when people go to a um, high school reunion, right? They're always going to say, oh, you know, I'm so successful. I'm happily married, even though you argue with your wife every night. 
And Putting their best face to the world, basically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that is an aspect that you notice in this positive aspect of the ego, but it's not, it's not negative. It isn't harmful. Now it's this fourth level that a lot of the, um, I want to say the ego psychologists and the psychodynamic psych uh, psychologists talked about was that they talked about this layer of defenses. This layer of defenses, its job is to distract people from painful issues. And we say that beneath this layer of defenses, and there's several different layers of defenses, and if you um, read the um, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, they actually itemize these layers of defenses. And some are, I want to say they're functional. Okay, so you have like humor as being a defense. You have altruism, helping other people. And then you get down to like really primitive ones of like denial and projection on other people. So these layer of defenses trying to keep you away from these areas of pain, which brings us to the next level of the ego. And this is typically the level that most people are raging against is that in this level, you have your dark side. It's called the shadow. Jung called it the shadow. And in it, you have your issues of anger, your issues of depression, your issues of blaming other people. And so these, they entify, you know, they become like these little, what we call sub-personalities in there. So you can actually interface with them. They're forms of psychology and also techniques from meditation that we introduce in our classes where you can actually work with these issues that are in the unconscious mind. And this is typically the way that people in the higher, uh, who are working in the spiritual realms, they look at this dark side of the ego. You know, if you look at, for example, in the Christian church, you know, they say, well, human beings are sinners. And, you know, they don't say, well, you know, you have these functional parts of your ego. They just say, well, look at this. You have this lustful subpersonality. Look at you. You have, you know, you're filled with anger and hatred. And, and you know, so they're pointing out this dark side. And a lot of spiritual groups, they point out this dark side of the egoic nature, you know, which is this, this shadow. And so in the spiritual teachings of the, of the Western esoteric schools, they speak of the ego as being the ogre on the threshold, which means that you have to bring your attention and get it through this, this gauntlet of all these subpersonalities that are pressing for, you know, to have their desires fulfilled, to take out their anger on somebody, to, you know, just say, well, life is not worth living. So it's this aspect of the mind that a lot of spiritual groups tend to target. And that's the way they're seeing the ego. And they're not seeing the functional parts of it. They're not seeing the whole thing. Now, the are, are, Aren't people simply using the word ego or identifying the word ego with parts of themselves that they don't like, and then compartmentalizing the stuff within the word ego, so they can then kind of dissociate with that part of themselves? Well, that's not who I really am. You know, that's my ego. And of course, I'm, I'm working on that. You know, I'm going to destroy that part eventually and get to the good stuff. You know, it's kind of like, well, that's, that's my ego over there. Is that what people are doing? Uh, well, yes, I 
I guess you can put it that way. Uh, that kind of looks like what they're doing. They're trying to disidentify from those aspects of their nature. I mean, it seems like all these, I mean, noted people, these uh, these spiritual teachers, for example, that I just quoted, you know, they're putting the ego as something that's separate from the good stuff, essentially. And um, it's like, where are the boundaries? You know, where are the boundaries? You know, and you kind of touched on that when you said, well, people put their best foot forward. They say, well, oh, yeah, that job. Yeah, I was the top salesperson. They're going to tell you that they're great, basically. Then when someone brings something up that wasn't so great, well, didn't you have like the highest rate of returns or, you know, um, cancellations of orders or something? Well, that's not my fault. (laughs) That was manufactured. They shipped the wrong item. That was a big problem. I mean, Um, well, to continue our discussion, transcending this zone of darkness and pain and all those negative things is an aspect of the ego that we call the egoic seed atom. Now, a gentleman by the name of John Bradshaw, who did a lot of work in recovery, talked about something he called the wonder child. And despite all the trauma and the pain and the anger and the unfulfilled desire that's in the shadow, transcending this is this very joyful aspect of your nature where you just live in a a world of beauty. Jesus said, um, those that enter the kingdom of heaven become like a little child. Well, this is very childlike aspect of your nature, delights in squirrels and the birds and seeing the rivers and looking at the beauty of people. And just, I mean, it's a very beautiful state of consciousness. And it's just one step beyond this area of pain. And finally, the deepest layer of of the ego is what I term the spiritual ego. And this is a big one because what happens is the people will identify with a particular essence. That essence might be what we call the moon soul or Christ child, which is the, the state of identity that people experience when they're focused in the level of the higher mind we call the first initiation. And going along with that is this very subtle aspect of the ego that goes along and say, well, you know, I'm so much better and purer. And those sinful people, they're all going to go to hell. You know, but I've been saved and I'm so much better than other people. I'm part of an elect group and I'm I'm just this wonderful, I'm so wonderful. So it's like, you know, whereas a lot of spiritual traditions talk about humility, you know, recognizing your place before the infinitude of of the divine, this subtle aspect of the ego makes people feel superior than others. Or in the other case, let's say that it's a a it's a um, spiritual group in which people are doing transformation. And one person moves ahead on the path before you. So you start feeling jealous of that other person and you say, well, you know, there's something wrong with them because, you know, there's no way they could gain those powers and those abilities and that knowledge. And they they get the special favor of the guru and I don't get that. So it's very subtle. It's a very subtle. And you see it in a lot of spiritual traditions, even people who are supposedly very, very advanced on the path, you see this 
subtle egotism at work. So in some ways, it's it's a pernicious aspect of the ego, part of the dark side, because it tends to inflate, you know, your perception of yourself. You know, so we say if this moon soul or nucleus of identity, as we call it, is, you know, it's just, it's really a neutral aspect of your being. It's a, it acts as a place where you can commune with the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's a place where you come to pray, like an inner altar. But then people who identify with it, you know, begin saying, well, you know, I'm so much better than you because I'm a, I'm a Christian and you're not and, you know, stuff like that. It becomes a source of subtle egotism. So those are the seven layers of the ego that we talk about. So I guess what you're saying, George, is that basically people don't understand that there's more than one aspect to the ego. I'm going to refer here to an article of yours. You have an article here, Reflections on Eckhart Tolle. And you write, when Tolle speaks of the ego, he paints a picture of this essence as malevolent, devious, manipulative, and the source of all human ignorance, misery, and pain. This is an accurate portrayal of the ego as many people experience it in one of its postures, the shadow, but does not capture the other six postures of the ego, which are not entirely evil as totally depicts. You are just going through these levels, which in your writing you call postures. The seven postures of the ego which you identify include what you call the embodied ego, the operational ego, the developmental ego, the defensive ego, the shadow, the egoic seed atom, and the egoic subtle identification. I'd like to go through the seven postures of the ego which you've mapped using your descriptions so people really get a sense of how you have mapped this out. You know, what is the anatomy of an ego? You know, where does it start? Where does it end? What should I blame it for? <laughs> what should I praise it for? And what should I really have just a neutral uh, outlook on as far as the ego is concerned? So let's start with the first one, which you call the embodied ego. Quote, this is the structure or chakra system of the ego in expression. These chakras include the waking state of awareness. And you actually have centers here, which I guess yeah. are, these are no, these are, um, these are for people who meditate, basically, through practices that you teach. But I will mention them for um, even though the, the listeners here don't necessarily have a reference. So these chakras include the waking state of awareness. That's the feet center. Movement awareness. That's the base of the spine. Sensory awareness. That's the navel. Deep body awareness. That's the solar plexus. Emotional awareness. That's the heart. Rational mind awareness. That's the throat. Egoic will. That's the point between the eyebrows. And the sense of identity surrounded by the 12 areas of human life. And that's the brain center. The egoic will in this context is the ability to initiate individual units of behavior. For example, tie your shoes, stand up straight, walk over to the counter and pour a glass of water. The 12 areas of human life comprise the zone of the operational ego, which is the second posture of the ego. At the level of the embodied ego, you intuitively experience the present time at each of these centers. 
So this embodied ego, is this the chakra system which uh, that you've identified here as the structure or the body of the ego, the same or different than the chakra system most people are familiar with, which is depicted in spiritual art? Well, one of the things that we teach is that for each form or vehicle of consciousness, there is an individual chakra system. So typically the chakra system that is portrayed in the, I want to say in the yogic tradition, are the chakras of the cosmic man or woman. And these correspond to the reflection of the physical body, reflection of the physical universe, reflection of the astral body, reflection of the astral universe, reflection of the individual causal body, reflection of the causal universe, the ideational plane, which appears to be the source of creation for all the other six levels. And then the seventh chakra, the brain chakra, is the state of God realization, or as they call it, supreme self-realization which they call Brahman. So that's a chakra system that you have mapped, but it's not in the conscious mind or the subconscious mind or the metaconscious mind. The chakra system that's most popular in yogic art is way, way up in an aspect of the superconscious mind. Yes, that's correct. But, but there are other chakra systems and our ego has a chakra system. Yes, that's correct. So, in the way that we study these different levels of the mind, we look and see, well, what are the functions? How does it work? How does it integrate its little sphere of consciousness? You know, its, its little band of awareness. And so within that, we can tease out the different centers that correspond to its functionality. Okay, now the context you identify for this posture, which you call the embodied ego, is function. So is this chakra system, which you're calling the embodied ego, the true nexus of the ego? That is, is this essentially the center of the conscious mind? Well, again, there are multiple centers that comprise the ego. So it's not just this one thing. It is for your ability to take in sensory information and then to perform behavior. So if you see a dog running at you that's very looks like it's very upset, you take in that information through your sensory field and you say, run. <laughs> you know, you make the decision, I need to run, right? Because I don't want to get bit by that dog. So this is, this is kind of the viewpoint that is, I want to say it's an analogy for the model of the central nervous system that basically takes in sensory information and then performs behavior. And then something takes place in that intervening space within the central nervous system that allows us to make decisions about what we need to do. So this is analogous to that. I want to say the physiological, psychological model, I want to say this is the correlate to that. Do the other functions of the ego hang on this structure? They utilize it. 
but they have a, you know, in other words, they're focused on something else. You know, I mean, it's the foundation, you know, without an embodied ego, you would just sit there and you would be a thought machine and you wouldn't be able to move. You wouldn't be able to feel, you wouldn't be able to think, you wouldn't be able to perform behavior. You know, they could use you for statuary in your garden, right? <laughs> so it's, it's a foundation. It's like, you know, we talk about the chariot, right? It's it's a thing you ride, a thing you drive, you know, to, to move in the physical world. And again, because the conscious mind is in the present time, then you're relating to what's going on in the present time at the level of the at the level of this embodied ego or integration center. So if you notice that, oh, I didn't turn off the faucet. You know, you you say, oh, I need to, you go over and you turn it off. So it's, you react to things that are going on in the, in the environment at the current time. I see. That makes sense. So basically it's kind of sensing, viewing what's going on and then reacting accordingly, basically. Yeah. So that's the behavioral aspect of our will. So it just does one thing at a time. You learn a behavior and you're able to do that. But it doesn't, unlike the metaconscious mind, it doesn't have the sense that, okay, we need to do this behavior in this step, this behavior in this step, this behavior in this step, and then eventually we reach our goal. And again, if you think about things that you do, like in your career, you know, you do a lot of behavior over many years. So you do a lot of behavior to get a college degree, or you do a lot of behavior to marry someone and raise a family. I mean, there's a lot of behavior in that, that you have to plan out the different aspects of it and then react to the changes that happen. But that's not what we're talking about here. That's at a higher level of consciousness. No, that's a higher level of the mind. But I want to make a distinction between that because the ego per se doesn't, you know, make plans. It simply says, okay, I'm going to do this behavior. And that's what it does. So when it decides, okay, I need to do this. And sometimes if the ego gets a crazy idea and says, I need to do this, then that deeper level of the mind, the, the self and the conscience will say, that's not a good idea. Stop. Okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on to the second posture of the ego that you've mapped, which you call the operational ego. And you write, this is the constellation of identity that captures the roles the ego plays in your life. These are mapped into 12 different areas, which while each individual may label these categories and organize their contents differently, the general structure of 12 areas appears to be a stable component of the operational ego. And the 12 areas are one, the physical body, two, vitality and health, three, emotions and relationships, four, home and family, five, education and mental development, six, career and avocation, seven, finances, eight, social life, such as recreation and social activities with friends and family, civic engagement and community involvement, that was nine. Number 10, cultural experiences and travel. Number 11, ethical foundation and values, and finally, 12, spiritual, religious, or philosophical life. And you're right, in the operational ego, you're experience, you experience the ambition 
to improve yourself and to attain what you desire and to strive for what you want. Okay. So essentially you have described the majority, if not all aspects of human life in this list of, uh, of 12 areas. So would you say that without the ego, none of these core activities of human expression can occur? If you don't have a desire, you're happy to sit like a pot, right? You know, people can plant flowers in you. Desire is the motivating function. It's what we call the core of motivation is your desire. That's so some another, people that's have another. Like hundreds and hundreds of desires and some people don't have a lot of desires. But it's the motivating function that I desire to make enough money so I can keep a home over my head and take care of my family. That's a desire that motivates you to go and work. If you don't have that desire, you know, you can be happy being a homeless wanderer, you know, receiving whatever, whatever food that somebody wants to bestow on you. Okay, so the context you're describing for the operational ego is motivation and desire. And you're stating that the ego's nexus of desires is arranged in these 12 areas through this operational posture of the ego. So when we talk about our various desires, um, you know, to eat at a certain fine restaurant in Paris, to go on safari, to find our soulmate, to be successful, to have children, are these desires all focused through this center? Yeah, in other words, this is what you experience in your life as to what you want to do with your life. If you have no desire, you know, essentially you've abandoned your life. You probably you live in an altered state of consciousness. Let's assume that most of us have desires. Yeah, okay. So uh, if we have these type of desires, basically, essentially you're saying they're found within the ego and specifically through this posture of the ego. Yeah, this is the this is where you're able to operate and to say, okay, this is what I want, and you know you you do whatever thinking and processing that you do at this level, and typically when the intensity of that is enough and the deeper aspect of your nature, which is the self, that can basically plan the steps to actually achieve that, right, right, take right, take a hold of it, then you know then you're able to actually make that real in your life. Okay, so and again, some in some spiritual writings, teachers, etc., they say the ego is filled with desire, and you're saying yes, the ego is filled with des desire. Now, is this a bad thing? Well, it depends on what you want in your life. You know, if you don't want anything in your life, if you just want to dwell in the higher realms and be in a state of bliss all the time and be desireless and basically, you know, sit under a tree. You don't need desires, but if you're planning to achieve something in your life, if you want your life to mean something, if you want your life to produce something, to achieve something, then you need some desires. So if you look at desires, I mean, some of them are just frivolous kind of things, and some of them are, you know, important things, and some of them are really core things. So we often say, identify what are your core desires? What are the things that really that really uh, animate your life? And give your focus to that. You know, work on those core things. So for many people that might be, well, I want to find a partner and I want to get married and have children. 
you know, I want to study and move into my career and, you know, make enough money to take care of myself, but then to save for my retirement, you know, so these core desires are the things that animate your life. If you don't have core desires, you are an empty, hollow shell. That sounds not pleasant, especially not pleasurable. Okay, let's move on to the third posture. As a note to listeners, I want to remind you that if you are interested in learning more about meditation and the topics discussed in the Mind the Owner's Manual podcast, please visit the website mindtheownersmanual.com for additional information, including articles, videos, and unpublished podcasts. Now back to the interview. The next posture is what you call the developmental ego. And you write, this is the state of identity that develops over time and progressively integrates and identifies with a broader range of capabilities and abilities. These range from the highly dependent infant to the capable independent adult, to the caring parent, to the individual who can look out for the welfare and issues of the entire world. This is the experience of where you are in your life right now and the capabilities you have developed. You draw upon this level when you summarize your education, your work experiences uh, on a resume, for example. So my question, it sounds like this aspect of the ego maps and records how we change and mature through our human life. Is that correct? Yeah. So in other words, the more experience you have, you gain additional abilities. So when you're maybe five years old, you learn to ride a bike. Okay. By the time you finished elementary school, grade six, you have a grasp of mathematics, have some knowledge about the world. You're becoming a better reader. You understand language better. And as you continue to grow and develop, you gain additional skills that you have available to you. And this gets to the point where you could use those skills ultimately, you know, to be a, a great force for change in the world. So you look at a lot of the people who are movers and shakers in the world, you know, they've gone through this process of development and they reach these levels. Now, I also talk about this level is that this is our this is also our life narrative, the way we tell our story of our life. And the, and as I said earlier, that sometimes people will tend to emphasize the positive and minimize the negative because they want to show themselves in a good light. But this being said, you know, it's a mirror of the skills you learn, so the skills, the knowledge, you know, the ways of learning to relate to other people. So this basically forms our life story, which is part of our identity, the experiences that shaped who we are today. Yeah, exactly. So why would you want to kill our identification with the things we've done, our accomplishments, our most memorable experiences? Isn't this what the people who say the ego must die are advocating? They essentially are looking at our identification with our past as a hindrance or evil, perhaps? What you see in a lot of spiritual groups is they will give a person a spiritual name and they say the ego is false. It's illusory. It's a hindrance. 
you need to keep your attention focused on this higher aspect of your mind all the time and be this holy and virtuous being that you know is a is a vessel of love and and you know is able to talk about the spiritual path that you're on and and you know might have certain spiritual abilities and they tend to emphasize that and they focus on that you know but they're not you know when you're totally focused in that other level you're not functional you have to be able to use your experiences your abilities your understanding of social relations to function in the world so if you're totally focused all the time on that spiritual essence your ability to function in the world atrophies and some of the bad stuff that happens with this and we see this all the time because i i've been working with people since 2006 who start messing with spiritual techniques that change their awareness and they have these strange energetic phenomena that happen to them and they're not able to function what we see happens when you do that is you start to experience what's called depersonalization you don't have a sense of any personal identity your life seems unreal which we call derealization and then the other aspect is disidentification where you're no longer identified with your life so it's just it's just kind of happening like a phenomena, you know, somewhere far away from who you sense you really are. But what we see is that for the most part, people who get into that state of consciousness are not able to fulfill their desires. They're not able to achieve things in their life. And, you know, in in a sense, well, maybe they're making progress as they unfold towards the inner spiritual horizon move closer to it using transformational methods but they're abandoning their life mm-hmm. when i used to work as a used to work as a um drug counselor I worked with heroin addicts and i remember one of the counselors the heroin addict would be basically you know lying to him and telling him all kind of strange stories and this counselor would look at him and he'd say, get a life. So if you indeed are incarnate, okay, if your soul is incarnate, you should have a life. Your objective is not to abandon your life. Your objective is to make your life as productive, effective, helpful, revolutionary, if necessary, as possible to change the world because you have lived the world becomes a better place. So please don't abandon your life. Right. So the spiritual teachers that are calling the ego an illusion, and they're asking people to essentially abandon their ego, uh, at that point, they're basically asking people to abandon their life story. And uh, I think most of us, I mean, how else are you going to measure our growth as people, as individuals, except by looking at the past? You know, I mean... I think the past is a really important piece, basically, and and the past is embedded in our life, you know, in our life story. We say, okay, this was a good experience. I learned from this. This was a harsh experience, but you know, this is what how it changed me, and and that becomes even though it's you know centered around this I, this ego, it does have value. You know, it does have inherent value. Yes, indeed. Well, I I often I often tell my students that if the ego was not supposed to be there, the creator 
you believe in a creator, would not have put it within the layers of your mind. It has a purpose. You have an organ in your body. You have a spleen. Okay. If there was not a purpose for the spleen, it would not be there. So that aspect of the ego is supposed to be there is to help you, you know, live in this world. So do you think that the new age teachers that again are vilifying or uh, tainting the ego in, in negative terms, I basically missed the boat. Well, you have to think about what is their objective. Their objective is they want to get people out of the conscious mind. They want to get people up into the state of consciousness that they're advocating that people dwell in. So it might be the soul. It might be the, the moon, solar, Christ child nucleus of identity. It might be cosmic consciousness. It might be the seed atom of a, of a, super cosmic path might be the spirit on a transcendental path. So their objective in doing this is to try to break people out of attachment to the ego so they can ascend as their attention and awareness to gain union with that higher spiritual essence. Well, so that's, that's a, the reason but... they do it. That's the reason they're, they're doing it. But in doing that, by vilifying the ego, by making people hate their own ego, reject their own ego. They're not doing people a service. You know, it, I often say the ego is like a puppy. Okay. It's got to be trained. It's got to be domesticated. You know, if it's not trained and domesticated, then, you know, it creates problems. But if you have a highly functional ego, you can be a positive influence, not only in your own life, but in the life of your family, your community, your nation, and the world, and and the planet. So you can be a positive influence if you train and cultivate the ego to be the instrument it was made to be. That makes perfect sense. Let's um, move on to your fourth posture, which you call the defensive ego. And you write, at this level, you attempt to maintain a positive image of yourself this might be construed as keeping up a positive self-concept to preserve your reputation and honor or to adhere to an ideal image of yourself, your ego ideal. When you are criticized, attacked, or belittled, this defensive ego generates excuses, rationalizations, arguments, and a series of defenses to protect your self-concept. This defensive armor can be stirred to protect any area in which you feel weak, or vulnerable and may be extended to defend not only your reputation, but also to your possessions, your family, your job, your membership in different groups and your values and faith. Okay. So this ego posture could easily be cast as negative. Uh, however, in war, uh, defense is pretty important to keep from losing what you have. Is that what is happening here? Well, the defensive, mechanism the mind is protective so it depends on what you are identified with so if you're identified just with your own individuality your own your own body and and ego your, your conscious mind construct of you in your life if you're just defending that then you have defenses that are protecting your reputation and if your footprint is larger you're taking care of a family then you're protecting your family 
And then if you're identified with a larger group, you're defecting, you're protecting your group. And if you're identified, say, with the community of the city, you're protecting your city. You know, and ultimately that goes to protecting your nation. You know, think about those who dedicate their lives to serve in the military. You know, they're saying, I'm not only going to protect, you know, my own skin, but I'm going to protect the people of the nation. So this protective mechanism can be both positive, you know, it's appropriate to attempt to protect the possessions you need to do your, do your work and to take care of your family. We get out, we take out insurance to try to protect from financial loss. So, I mean, there are positive aspects to protection and then there are the, you know, the negative aspects of protection that, you know, we typically associate with a negative balance of the ego. So the context of this posture of the ego, you, you describe as psychological armoring. Yes. Uh, these are the layers of defense that protect you from experiencing painful or shameful memories. Many therapy practices seem to be targeting this defense mechanism and trying to get past this armoring to a deeper, more truthful perception of our actions, events, and character. Would you say that, that that's the case? They are targeting this aspect of the ego? Yes, that's correct. Especially the psychodynamic schools of therapy, ego psychology, they want to get down and take on these defenses until they get down to the core issues, the core pain, the core wounds that are in the shadow. I see. So basically, you have to move through this posture, which you call the defensive ego in therapy to get to the next posture, which is the uh, number five, the shadow. Yes, that's correct. Interesting. All right, well, let's move into the shadow. That's the fifth posture. That's the posture you say Eckhart Tolle is keyed into. And you write the shadow. This is the unconscious level of the ego and comprises the unconscious defenses that keep these painful and shameful aspects of the mind out of awareness. These unconscious mental patterns drive human obsession, craving, and suffering, and may appear to act autonomously outside the control of your volition and intention. Many spiritual teachers, totally included, target this aspect of the ego and promote spiritual practices such as mindfulness, quote, being present, and remaining in, quote, the present time to overcome this suffering. When you tap this level, you experience identification with your suffering, fear, shame, anxiety, or depression. So you describe the context of our shadow as our core psychic wounds. And these are the painful and shameful unresolved issues that form the content of our shadow. Can this material ever be completely resolved? Or are we always going to have a shadow whether we choose to acknowledge or deny its existence? Well, what I can say is that it is possible to resolve issues that are in this shadow. Now, in our tradition, they ref we refer to these elements of the mind that operate autonomously from will and intention. We refer to them as destiny karma, or we also use the Sanskrit term pralabdha karma. And it is possible over time to work out these issues. So we can say that the relative shadowing in your life decreases as that occurs. So let's use the example of a person who is addicted to cigarettes. And they spend many years of their life, you know, having to, you know, spend their money on cigarettes. They're having health problems. They're pretty much having to spend extra money because they 
you know, their clothes smell like cigarette smoke and they have to do extra laundry, et cetera, et cetera, all the negative things that come along with the cigarette smoking. And so they get down to the bottom of, you know, why am I smoking cigarettes? They resolve it. That goes away. Suddenly they have more money. Suddenly they have, you know, a little more positive view of themselves. They might have felt a little bit of shame that they were addicted to cigarettes. They didn't have control over it. So you see the change in the egoic structure when you actually finish and integrate these aspects. Is it possible to integrate all the aspects of the shadow? I want to say theoretically it is possible as to whether or not most people in the world are able to do that. I, I would say probably most people have some elements of the shadow remaining, although they may make progress with working out some of those issues that are in there. I often say that when all the issues in your shadow have been completed, when you've finished your pralab karma, then your life as we know it is pretty much complete. You finish the issues you come here to resolve. And, you know, at that time you often see people, you know, passing away because they they don't have any more issues to deal with. They finish what they've come here to do and then they terminate their lives. Their, their lives, you know, they pass away. So is this shadow referred to in Eastern traditions in relation to karma? In my uh, reading of different traditions, it seems they associate that actions that come out of this shadow create new, new karmic patterns. In the Christian tradition, they talk about when we act out of this quote-unquote sinful nature or carnal nature, then we create sins. And if you, if you drill down and you say, well, where exactly is this coming from? Typically, it's when you are acting from these patterns in the unconscious mind, acting out your anger, acting out your lust, acting out your greed, acting out your desire to be greater or, or more powerful than somebody else, which come out of the issues that are in this unconscious zone of the mind. Right. And the unconscious is, um, so you've identified the conscious mind, the subconscious mind, the metaconscious mind, and the superconscious mind as the four main aspects of mind. Is the unconscious a fifth aspect of mind or something else altogether? Okay. So if you look at any element of the mind, there's an area that is conscious and integrated, and then an area that has not yet been awakened. It's not integrated. It's often not under the control of the conscious mind. So sometimes that material begins to interact with the conscious mind and or it actually begins to generate behavior. So it kind of bypasses your conscious mind. So you think about a person who is addicted at the level of the conscious part of the mind and saying, well, you know, I don't want to use drugs anymore. And then they find themselves, well, I have to go and get it. And they find themselves acting out that pattern. Beyond their control, basically. Beyond their control. And so this unconscious mind is the part that we redeem. We we work with the issues in it, we turn it into light. So it, the unconscious mind essentially is our potential. And so when you're able to transform different aspects of the unconscious mind, 
then you have greater you have a greater amount of your ability knowledge your i want to say your your positive character virtues that can be expressed in your life so we often talk about three levels of the unconscious mind so we talk about the lower unconscious or the shadow which is these issues that are playing out in your life then we talk about the middle unconscious and the middle unconscious is that potential that is within the zone of the self and the metaconscious mind that hasn't yet been brought into expression and then finally we talk about the higher unconscious which is in the superconscious mind and that represents your spiritual potential that you've not yet actualized i see thanks for uh, clarifying that that's uh, very interesting so we're going to move on to the sixth posture which you call the egoic seed atom and you write this aspect of the human mind is tuned up as the soul evolves it is a state of wonder of delight of a joyful inner child that sees the beauty of everything around you perhaps jesus was referring to the state when he said the kingdom of heaven is within you and you must become as a little child to enter the kingdom of heaven you experience a heavenly world of magic and wonder when you're in this state of awareness Okay, so here you're really throwing a curveball at the standard common belief that the ego is purely negative. Uh, are you saying that without this aspect of the ego, we can't touch our soul and be filled with a sense of wonder? Well, we often say that as the soul evolves, it brings along with it, it's what we call it's a sensu vehicle. That's the vehicle by which the soul interacts with all of its other forms on the different planes of light. It brings it. It moves all the forms along with it, and it also tunes up certain centers in the metaconscious, subconscious, and conscious mind. And one of the centers that it tunes up is this egoic sita. So, when you are have worked out your issues, or you transcended your issues in the shadow. You get in touch with this joyful aspect of you, and you kind of feel that you're connected with the soul. I see. You feel this connection. Mm -hmm. You feel the joy, and it's a, it's a state of beauty and delight. You know, when I go out walking, for example, and I see the, I see the ducks, and I see the goats, and I see the birds, and you know the beauty of the lake near where I live. It's, you know, I get in touch with this aspect of myself. So, so as a parent, when your child basically has a win, they move forward in their development and they're doing something that maybe they were dependent on you from uh, before or just something they weren't really, you know, mature enough to handle. And now you see them doing this independently. That's kind of a, that's kind of how I relate to this. You, you, uh, it's like a, a win. It's like a real feel, feeling of upliftment. Is that what I'm tuning into, the egoic seed atom, when I'm seeing you know a child have a win in that fashion? Well, I think when a child has a win, it's typically experienced at the level of the life narrative or the life story. So that becomes something that builds your positive self-esteem. This is just this is more of an experiential state where you're just noticing the beauty of everything around you. Mm -hmm. Find delight in a spider. You know you're not afraid of it. You know you say what a beautiful creature it is. It's just 
Well, it's, it, does, it does feel existential in, in that experience. I mean, I don't feel as like it's part of my personal self-esteem. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's just a, an amazing thing of uh, its growth. Basically, it's amazing yeah. growth mm-hmm. to witness. Yes. So would that possibly be part of the ego, egoic seed atom? The egoic seed atom is in some ways, I want to say in some ways it's detached from the suffering of the shadow. And in some ways, it's detached even from the life narrative. It's very much the present time experience of just the beauty that's all around us, I the see. beauty and the wonder. So we're talking about a whole different state of awareness that's really not even attached to your life narrative. Yes, that's correct. I mean, it's experience that, okay, I'm, you know, I'm walking right now around around the lake, but... You know, I'm feeling the joy and the wonder. I'm seeing the beauty of the plants and the, and the birds and hearing their song and and looking at the ducks on the lake and, you know, saying hello to all the ducks. So so this almost sounds really, like bliss. Yeah, it's a very it's a very joyful, blissful state of consciousness. So like I said, uh, right at the core beyond the suffering. So like I said before, you're really throwing a curveball here at the standard common belief that the ego is just this negative illusion, you know, illusion, basically, and you're doing the opposite. No, it can be a source of bliss. Yeah, because there's an aspect of your ego that is in tune with the soul. The nature of the soul is joy and bliss. And part of that is experienced in this ego exceedance. So it's not, it's not a, you know, it's not a negative thing, you know, so the ego is not just this demon, you know, it has positive and negative aspects. Is that felt in a particular part of the body, you know, like a chakra system? Well, I I think that a lot of people kind of feel that that aspect is, you know, when they're kind of in, I guess a lot of people feel that when they're in that state, they're feeling kind of in touch with their heart. You know, there's a saying, follow your heart, follow your bliss, right? Follow your joy. That's kind of focusing people on that center where they're in touch with this greater life within them. I see. That's very important. I like that. Yeah. Okay. So um, the seventh and final posture of the ego that you've identified is what you call the egoic subtle identification. And you write, this aspect of the ego enables you to identify with a spiritual essence and then to form certain beliefs, attitudes, and judgments about self and others when you're in this state of identification. For some, it gives them a sense of superiority, of specialness, of being a member of an elite group. For others, this takes the form of comparing their progress with others and being dissatisfied with the rate and quality of their spiritual progress. For others, it is a belief that they are flawed, that they are demented, and blind worms that can never gain enlightenment or receive the blessing of God. For others, it can become a sense of narcissism and grandiosity that they are a divine being incarnate. I've actually met some of those. And they are entitled to special treatment and the worship and obedience of others. This aspect of the ego sounds like a really double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's valuing spirituality and recognizing the spiritual life is vital. On the other hand, it can develop uh, what seem flawed judgments and extreme thinking, which I suppose in some instances might have even led to religious war in the past. So how do you bring balance and perspective to this aspect of the ego? Well, part of it is becoming aware that 
you're engaging in this. You know, one of the distinctions that I think it's valuable for people to make is that if you focus on a spiritual essence and you see, well, what are, you know, what are my abilities here? You know, what are my, you know, what's the love and the virtue and the compassion that comes from the center? You know, what's the knowledge that I have at this level? And how can I use this to serve? So it's a matter of recognizing that it is there to serve what we call the soul, the aspect of your nature that is the integrating center of your superconscious mind versus feeding the ego with it to say, well, I, I'm so high. I'm so blissful. Oh, I am just so superior to other people. I just can't eat it. So, you know, to understand it, what it is, it is a tool. It is a vessel. So, for example, if I have developed my abilities in the form that I have on the psychic realm, well, then my job is that I'm going to use those abilities to assist others. Maybe I might use it also, you know, to work with issues within myself, but it's there for service. It's not there to exclaim, you know, how great you are and, you know, it has nothing to do with your egoic identity. So I guess as you begin to disabuse yourself of these notions, you begin to let go of that. You say, well, okay, my turf is I need to take care of this life, this world, and I'll let the soul take care of its world and its functions. And ideally, something of the functionality of the soul will be able to be expressed through my life and I'll become a blessing for other people. Through your model of the seven postures of the ego, I think you've shown us a larger scope than most people have presented as to the qualities and boundaries of the ego. You've written the following, transcending the ego allows you to view it from a detached viewpoint and to disidentify with it. This shift is from being the actor in your life to a passive spectator of your life. Like a trance state in hypnosis, when you enter these internal focal points, you passively view the content of the mind that makes up the ego, but you don't interact with it. You retain the ability to objectively observe your ego from this detached standpoint, as long as you remain in this altered state of awareness. When you return your attention to its ground state in the waking state of awareness, your experience of the ego returns. So it sounds like the ego never goes away which is, I guess, contrary to what some spiritual systems say, but that meditation and spiritual practice help one live a larger way, live in a larger way, you know, than merely from the limitations and boundaries that the ego inherently possesses. Is that the case? Well, when you transcend the ego, let's say you go up and you merge your attention in cosmic consciousness, you disidentify with the ego, and then you sense that you are this spiritual being, and then you try to express that as best you can, in your, you know, in your life. And then you get the sense of rebellion that the ego says, well, hold it. What about my college education? You know, what, what about my career? So that's where you get the conflict taking place because the ego has certain desires that it wants to fulfill. And then all of a sudden you go into this altered state of consciousness and you start living another agenda. You know, now you are there to serve your your guru or your minister or your spiritual teacher and to follow and obey them and to do whatever they tell you to do. 
you're not living your life anymore. You're living another agenda. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So would you say that the ego was a hindrance or obstacle in your personal spiritual journey? Well, the ego is a functional aspect of your nature. What the issue is, is that you don't want to have the ego be a barrier for you to go deeper into meditation. But at the same time, you don't want to shut down the ego so you're totally non-functional. You know, if you're totally non-functional, we can put you out in the garden, put a pot on your head, and we can use you for stature. You need to be functional. And the ego is part of your ability to be functional in this world. So through your spiritual journey, how did you encounter the ego in a way that made it possible for you to map the ego in the way that you have with the seven postures, you know, identifying these seven postures of the ego. And did this knowledge fundamentally change the way you approached life or how you looked at other people? Well, between 1997 and 2006, I embarked upon a project in which I mapped each of the levels of the mind. And as we studied each level of the mind, then we gained certain insights about, you know, what's actually there. It's like if I am on a if I'm on a journey, if this is the early 1800s and I'm going out and I'm exploring the West and I'm taking notes. Okay, at this location, there's a mountain there and also there's a lot of prairie. And I notice over here, I notice that there's buffalo and then you move along to another area and say, okay, there's a river that runs here. There's some mountains over there that have ice on top of them and they see, appear to be the source of the river. You move a little further and you say, okay, well, here are these very rocky area and it looks like these are the foothills of another set of mountains. So you're mapping what you actually see there. You're, you're taking notes and what's actually there. And then once you are able to look at the whole picture, then you see, okay, well, these look like they're a similar structure. Okay. These are all part of what we call the ego. These aspects are part of the mental sita, the mental function of the mind. These are the parts that are aspects of the feeling aspect of the conscious mind. So you're able to learn about the actual functioning as opposed to simply labeling some part of this egoic complex as being, you know, what the ego is. You know, you have to understand it as a whole. So that's the aspect of my spiritual journey that enabled me to to be able to formulate this model of the ego. One of the things that I looked at when I was doing my master's degree was I wanted to look at, well, what happens in religious cults, what's actually happening to their awareness? You know, where is their attention focused? How has that changed their identity? How does that change their beliefs, their values, their behavior? I also looked at the role of dysfunctional families and how that can influence people in negative aspects in their life. And as I looked at these, I also looked at the impact of how these cultic groups, negative family upbringing, how that influenced the ego. Now, I think that if we have a more comprehensive understanding of the ego, we're not going to demonize it. We're going to recognize its functioning as it is and note that there are certain aspects of the ego that we need to tame. Okay, if you have a garden 
and your plants are growing wild all over the place, well, you got to go in there from time to time. You got to prune your plant. The same thing is, is that the ego, if it's, I want to say, if you've developed it in a positive way, it can be a real tool for you to function in the world. If you don't develop it in a positive way, if you get involved in religious cults or strange religions and political parties or hate groups, if you come from a background of being abused or troubled in your family, if you're associated with people who are implanting negative ideas in your mind and, and urging you to adopt criminal behavior, you know, these are aspects that are going to bring out these negative aspects of the ego. But if we carefully cultivate it, then it's going to become a tool for us. It's going to become something which is, enables us to function in a positive way in the world. Let's think about what your life would be like if you don't know how to drive and then you gain that behavior, you learn how to do that, then that opens up whole new horizons for you. So you want to equip your ego with the particular skills that it needs to fulfill your worthy desires and not to demonize the ego and try and destroy the ego and the ego is supposed to be here bottom line it's supposed to be here but let's let's make our ego a positive expression as opposed to you know the negative expression we see so often when people are acting out their issues from the shadow their anger, their rage, their unfulfilled desires, taking things out on other people, etc., etc. And we see too much of that in the world today. This is Lawrence Castilla. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Mind the Owner's Manual, a podcast series where I try to bring you in-depth discussion on meditation and consciousness. Please visit my website, mindtheownersmanual.com, and join the free member area to access additional tools and recordings on these topics. Have you wanted to learn how to meditate but weren't sure where to begin? Are your current meditations unfocused, repetitive, or boring? Are they not giving you the results that you want? People choose to learn to meditate for a variety of reasons. To have a higher frequency of peak performance and flow state experiences. For improved ability to relax the body and relieve stress. To have a richer, more vivid dream life and sounder sleep for enhanced clarity and mental concentration, to deepen the connection to their spirit, for stronger willpower and greater ability to control behavior and habits, to develop intuitive and psychic gifts, for better appreciation of religious teachings and living essential truths and values, to have mystic experiences with angels, spiritual guides, and God, for deeper insight and self-knowledge culminating in enlightenment and for direct experience of the spirit 
and the soul. If who we really are and the potential we possess lies within, how do we access these parts of our being? I would like to share with you the most comprehensive Introduction to Meditation course available. The Introduction to Meditation course is not a basic meditation course. This course is designed to train your inner concentration and give you powerful inner landmarks so you can travel within in an oriented and directed manner. You will learn the fundamentals of meditation as the Introduction to Meditation course takes you step by step through the levels of your mind. You will learn to recognize the structures within your mind which will enable you to enhance your ability to control and focus your attention. You will explore each of the levels of the conscious, subconscious, and metaconscious mind. You will learn how to contact your soul and how to get guidance from your soul. You will gain a far greater scope of what meditation is and you will increase the depth of experience that meditation offers. To learn more about this course, please visit mindtheownersmanual.com.